Uh, tonight uh, we're going to be looking um, in our Bible overview uh, at the prophets uh, in the Old Testament. So um, either you have your, your phones uh, moving quickly with your fingers or if you uh, would find it more helpful to have an actual copy of the Bible, if you maybe put your hand up or make your way to the back and get, uh, get a copy because we're going to be looking at quite a number of references that won't come up on the screen. You're going to have to turn up to them uh, as we go along. So it's going to be a bit of a tour de force tonight uh, as we look at We'll see how far we get, but uh, what's before us is the possibility of going from Isaiah uh, maybe through to Habakkuk, uh, so we'll see how we get on. So uh, uh, if you turn your Bible, probably first of all uh, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. So um, prophets, all these prophets, all these names, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and so forth. Prophets, men who spoke for God, men who were God's mouthpiece, God's oracle. And of course, Peter reminds us in the New Testament that if anybody speaks, He should speak as the oracle of God. You know, these men came with a sense of conviction, uh, with a sense of authority, uh, of moral power. Uh, They were courageous. They often spoke in circumstances when they were very unpopular. And yet they spoke with real authority, with an awareness that they came from the presence of God, with the word of God for the people. Prophets, you know, prophets who told the future, but prophets who also gave the message of God at that time for the situation and the circumstances that they were in. And in that sense, there are still prophets today, people who bring the word of God. And uh, let's all grasp that initial point about confidence and authority and conviction and courage and speaking from God himself. That's what these men did. And of course we know from Peter again, Second Peter chapter 1, that their message didn't originate in their own heads. That they spoke from God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they delivered these messages. Now to try and tie this in to some extent with the theme of God's kingdom, I'd like to make this point that um, God's kingdom, as far as these men were concerned, took up a number of perspectives. I mean, the majority of these people spoke into a disintegrating and a declining kingdom as far as the national earthly kingdom was concerned. Fragmenting. Going to go into exile some of the time. Uh, But they spoke for God in that situation. Many of them also spoke about the coming of Christ. When the full expression of what it would mean to subject yourself to the rule of God in a spiritual sense would take place. And they prophesied about the coming Messiah. And they also went further than that. And they talk about a day that is yet to come. 
when Christ's kingdom will be here on earth and Christ will reign. And so there are different dimensions and aspects of the idea of the reign of God that we're going to pick up on as we talk about um, these, these men. So we're going to have one slide only and Kieran's going to zap that up for us just right now. And hopefully you can just see a little bit of it. So we have uh, the five major prophets on the right-hand side. Uh, they're called major because the books are bigger and also because the scope of what they talk about is a little bit more expansive than these uh, minor prophets. Now the majority of these, is there another part to that slide that comes up, a box in the middle? Uh, it's disappeared, right. Uh, the box in the middle that should be there, um, it talks about the times that the various people prophesied within. Some of them, in fact the majority, they speak during the time just before um, as the country is going to go into exile. And then we have some of them who talk during the period of the exile. So for instance, you've got Ezekiel and Daniel who speak during the exile, the 70 years in captivity. And then you have a few at the end, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi, who are called the post-exile prophets. So that's the kind of rough kind of division of how it goes, just to, just to give you a kind of structure to it. So we're attempting obviously to, to do this overview uh, and you know, by definition that means we're going to be uh, pretty brief. But I hope that we do capture the spirit of these uh, prophecies because um, the information is obviously important, but the spirit and the tone in which it is delivered is also important. And I hope that we grasp that to some extent as well. Um, so let, let's, let's just say something briefly about Isaiah to start with. Now, verse 1 of chapter 1 uh, tells us, of course, if you look at that, that Isaiah prophesies during, during the reign of these kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. So this is prior to the nation going into exile. Obviously, we're spending a fair bit of time on Isaiah. We're going through it, as you know, uh, in the mornings just now. Isaiah's great point is that he's, he's called the evangelist of the Old Testament. And we've been discovering that. You know, how much and frequently he speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the biggest points of Isaiah is um, in chapter 6. So if you turn over to chapter 6... Uh, and remind yourself of what happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Because Isaiah had a vision of the Lord that changed his entire life and his ministry. He sees this vision, and we learn this from John's Gospel, that it is the pre-incarnate Christ that he sees. And he has this vision of, of God high and lifted up, his train filling the whole temple, and the seraphim that are around him, and, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord uh, of hosts. And, and Isaiah is decimated by this. He's completely overwrought by this vision. And um, he's, he's told that his sin can be taken away. I'm undone. And a, a live coal from the altar comes and touches his lips and, and your guilt, it's taken away. And he's commissioned, who will go? Who will I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, uh, send me. And the whole of the book is talking about uh, the sending of Isaiah and what he has uh, to say. And it's there for our comfort and it's there for our encouragement uh, as we think of the wonderful evangelist 
uh, of uh, the prophets. Now, he's going to talk obviously about the, the coming of Christ. Isaiah 53 is the, is the great chapter about that. But he will talk about things that go beyond there. And uh, one of the passages that gives us a good insight into that is from chapter 61 which was spoken on just a few weeks ago if you want to just turn over to 61 because at the beginning of that chapter um, there is a there's a passage that's quoted extensively in Luke chapter 4 by Christ himself when he goes to Nazareth when he's uh, preaching in the synagogue there and he, he, he turns to this passage and he begins to read it and he says you know the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he's anointed me to preach uh, the good news to the poor and so forth. And uh, he stops and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Now, I'd just like to point out that where he stops is halfway through verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, halfway through the sentence, he stops. Because the rest of it is talking about a further time. It goes on to talk about the day of vengeance of our God and so forth. And so often when we come into the prophecies, it's sometimes quite difficult to, to work out where the prophecy is pointing to. But it does talk about a time that is beyond ours as well. Jeremiah was round about the same time as, uh, as, as Isaiah. Um, if you go over to Jeremiah chapter 1. And verse 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. And it tells you uh, the kings that he, uh, he prophesied under, uh, which goes right down at the end of verse 3 to Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. And so Jeremiah is speaking just at the very point when the nation actually goes into exile. Now, he was a reluctant prophet initially in many ways. You look at uh, verse 4, you know, the word of the Lord comes to him, says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. And he says, sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. You know, I can't do anything. This is, this is too much for me. I can't possibly fulfill this role to the nation, particularly in these climactic times. And he feels inadequate. And here's a great message that comes to all of us. Who of us has not felt inadequate for the work of God? Just think of the presentation we've had tonight and the millions in Africa. Who doesn't feel inadequate for the great call of mission? What could I do? How could I possibly be called to do that? And, and, and he has to be rebuked by God. And God, he, he reminds him of what he has to do. Verse 7, don't say, I'm only a child. Don't say that. You must go, you must go to everyone I send you to and say what I command you. And don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Now, how could he be adequate? Well, the next few verses teach us the Lord reaches out his hand and he touches his mouth 
And he says to him, Now I've put my words in your mouth. And see, today I'm appointing you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. God touches him. And you know, Jeremiah needed this sense of calling. Because Jeremiah had a desperate time. He was nearly killed. They threw him down a cistern on one occasion. And they, and they totally despised the man's ministry and despised him as a person. And the thing that kept Jeremiah going was the sense that he had been called by God to do this, even although it was desperately unpopular. And you get a sense of that from, from what he's told to do in verse 10 here. Because he's first of all told to uproot things, to tear down things, to have a negative ministry. To challenge the status quo and to tear down the things that were existing and were popular and that people talked about and held dear. He had to tear it all down first. And he wasn't popular because of that before he had to then build subsequently the word of God. So let me just show you one example of how um, unpopular he was. Uh, If you turn over to chapter 36... Um, you have an occasion when he's speaking uh, to the king. He has an audience uh, with the king. And uh, if you look at verse 22 of chapter 36, it says here, it was the ninth month. The king was sitting in the, in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. And uh, uh, Jehudai, who, who was the, the, the kind of scribe who had written down the, the words of the prophecy of Jeremiah, when he had read three or four columns of the scroll, what did the king do? He cut them off with a scribe's knife and he threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. Totally despised the prophecy of Jeremiah, the word of God that came to him. And he kept going. Jeremiah persevered. One of the great things, the additional great things in the book of Jeremiah that he prophesied, you get this one in chapter 31, verse 31, is the announcement of the new covenant. The new covenant that I will write in the hearts of the people. They will be mine. And this is developed and taken up by the Lord Jesus and, of course, the writers of the New Testament as well. Now, this isn't the only book that's attributed to Jeremiah. If you turn over to the very next one, the book of Lamentations, its full title, of course, is The Lamentations of Jeremiah. It's a lament. And it's a lament that Jeremiah makes at the destruction of Jerusalem. The thing that he had prophesied, was he he doing this in a cold, kind of clinical sense? No, he wasn't. He was the weeping prophet. And he did it with a, with a broken heart. And, and you get a sense of this. And by the way, you know, the only people really who have a right to, to speak words of justice and judgment, I think, are sensitive people who feel the burden and the import of it. And Jeremiah was certainly a sensitive man, touched by a sense of the glory of God, um, as, as, as Isaiah had been. But look at, look at how he starts off his lamentation. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great 
among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. You should read the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Fantastic. You know, if even, if, even just from the point of view of literature, you know, it's great to read. Uh, but there are wonderful promises that in the midst of this devastation that, that Jeremiah is so affected by, uh, you have words of, of, of promise. But look, look first of all at, at verse 12. Because this, this great verse in chapter 1, verse 12, has been taken by many over the years, many commentators, to, to be a bit more than just Jeremiah's experience. They look on this as messianic. It's almost as if Christ is speaking from the cross. The person who, who suffered the greatest distress of all, is it nothing to you? All you who pass by, look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? I think we can see that very clearly, the messianic connotations of that particular verse. Of course, probably the most famous verse that we have uh, in Lamentations is over in chapter 3 um, and verse number 22. And uh, Jeremiah holds on to this. Despite the destruction of his beloved city and the expulsion of his own people, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And how many of us, how many of the Lord's people over the years have found such comfort and solace in the, in the promise of, of the great faithfulness of our God and his mercies that are new every morning. And so, Today, you know, as we, as we go through and think briefly as we are of, of what Lamentations is teaching us, let us take these things to our heart and find comfort um, in them again. The next book is the book of Ezekiel. And uh, Ezekiel moves us just a little bit further as far as our time frame uh, is concerned. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So Ezekiel is actually among the exiles. He's prophesying not from Jerusalem or Judah. He's actually among the exiles. He's in the land of Babylon. And he's God's man speaking for God in the very center uh, of uh, the opponents of uh, God's people. What's the big point in Ezekiel? Well, how, how could I try and summarize uh, the book uh, of Ezekiel? Well, this prophecy emphasizes, I think, above anything else, the idea of the glory of God. God's glory. So, I mean, if you were to just briefly scan down chapter 1, you would see that uh, there's, a, there's a storm coming. There's a windstorm that's coming. But this is not a natural storm. In the middle of the storm, Ezekiel suddenly <coughs> is aware of, of four living creatures 
And he expands that vision as you, as you read down it. The details are all there. You know, the wheels within wheels that are mentioned and so forth. And, and it's, a, it's a vision of God that he sees. And, the, and, and, and he's overtaken and overwhelmed with a concept of the greatness and the glory of God. Now, the thing that is conveyed about the glory of God uh, that we have here um, is that the glory of God moves so, for instance, at the end of chapter 1, he summarizes that this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And so then, if you move further on, um, and you go, uh, for instance, to chapter 10 and verse number 18, chapter 10 and verse number 18, this vision that has been described in chapter 1, he now says at this point, then the glory of the Lord departed. The glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. And then again, if you go to chapter 11 and verse uh, 22, then the cherubim with the wheels spread their wings, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from within the city, and it stopped above the mountains east of it. Now, this is a tragic state of affairs. It's, it's, it's the sense of what we, we get elsewhere in Scripture, the glory has departed. The presence of God and the glory of God, which was in the temple, it moves to the threshold, and then it moves away from the city and is upon the mountains. And the glory of God's gone. They've lost it. Lost it completely. It's just a, it's a low point as far as the explanation and demonstration of, of the, the spiritual low state, the poverty that they're in. From a spiritual point of view. And what a, what a desperate thing that is for any of us. You know, for, for churches, for individuals. Because of sin. You know, because of disobedience. Because of hypocrisy. To lose a sense of the glory of God and of His presence. It's something that's chilling. And we should be seriously challenged about. And that is part of the prophecy of Ezekiel, but with hope added on to it. So, for instance, you come away down to chapter 43 uh, of the book, and uh, what you have uh, there described is that the glory of God will return again. You see this? Chapter 43, verse 1, The man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. Verse 4, the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate. And, and uh, as well as the, the warning uh, about the glory of God leaving, he gives the prophecy of the hope of God's glory one day returning to his people. And that is the message uh, of Ezekiel. The, the, the next book, the book of Daniel, uh, is also during the, the captivity uh, Daniel is one of the better known uh, of the prophets. Uh, it's also during the Babylonian exile. And as you see from the first few verses uh, of the book of Daniel, that uh, you know, 
he is one of the captives that's carried away by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon. Uh, Daniel fulfills a tremendous role as a civ- basically a civil servant, as a tremendous witness for God. You know, in uh, the, the the eye of the tiger. You know, just right there in tiger country. Um, uh, the the opponents. Uh, the enemies of the kingdom of God, and yet Daniel was there as a witness and as a mouthpiece uh, for God. Um, the main message of Daniel is, is the fact that God is in control, that, that God is sovereign. You know, despite Nebuchadnezzar, you know, there's an instance in the book when Nebuchadnezzar looks over Babylon and says, you know, is this not great Babylon that I have built for my own glory? And he's struck down by one of the watchers. You know, and he's made to eat grass like a like cattle, and his mind goes until he acknowledges that it's the Most High that rules in the kingdoms of men, and He gives the kingdoms to whoever He chooses. And God is in control. And of course, the Book of Daniel has a lot of fascinating and interesting uh, visions in it, uh, and they, they make that kind of point time and time again. Uh, one of the, the, the most well-known is in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, for instance, at verse 44, there is the point made that despite this huge image, and this image that characterizes the empires of the world, by the way, some of the empires that were not even in existence, of course, when Daniel spoke about them, and yet they're talked about there, Greece, you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the stone that is cut out without hands that strikes the image on the feet and it crumbles to dust. And yet, this stone, it grows into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And of course, that is another messianic prophecy about, about Christ himself and how the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and how he will reign forever and ever. So that is one of the great messages uh, of, of Daniel. But the other great point, of course, is just about Daniel as an individual. You know, the integrity of Daniel. Now, there's a great verse. I'll, I must get you to turn to this one. In chapter 5, you know, this is the great passage about the writing on the wall. You know, when um, uh, Belshazzar gives his feast and uh, they don't know what to do. And the queen is brought in. And uh, this is what she says in chapter 5, verse 11. Everybody's terrified because of the events of the night. Absolutely terrified. The king, it describes his knees are knocking together and he falls down. Who can, who can interpret the words of the writing that's upon the wall? And, and here's, the, here's the, the answer the queen gives. There is a man in your kingdom. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And who was the man? It was Daniel. And Daniel's brought out. And he speaks for God. In that center of sin and depravity, he speaks the word of God. I, now, I remember uh, hearing a missionary report from Botswana. Um, and uh, the, the chap who gave the report, a man called Jim Legg, some of you from Fife will know him. And... Uh, he used this as his text. Uh, and he was speaking about a man 
who I had actually met, who came to Aberdeen uh, to do some of his postgraduate medical training, and whose name has just kind of gone from me just now, but who, when he went back to Botswana, and he was a, a Christian guy, and he, he rose to such an influence in the country that uh, Jim used these words here to describe his influence uh, uh, as far as his Christian integrity and his witness for God among his own people. You know, there is a man in the kingdom who has the spirit of God within him. You know, what, what, a, what a testimony. And, you know, that's the kind of thing God, God would like for, for all of us. You know, to, to be his man and his woman and his witness where, we, where he uh, has placed us. I'm just going to do Hosea, because we did start five minutes late, actually. Uh, and I'll finish at Hosea, and we'll just do the rest, leave the rest for next week. Okay. So, uh, the book of Hosea takes us back in time. You know, we're, we're not in the exile. As you can see from chapter 1, uh, verse 1, uh, we're back among the kings, uh, so historically speaking, you know, we've actually gone back uh, in time a little bit. And uh, the main theme of the book of Hosea is, is about marriage. All right? it's, it's actually about Hosea's own marriage. He marries a, a woman by the name of, uh, of Gomer. You see that in verse 3? He married uh, Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and she bore him a son. And the thing about Hosea is this. Hosea has to actually live out his message. You know, so it's not just some kind of dispassionate talk that he's given. He's not just saying, well, this is the message that the Lord has given me. Uh, here it is. I'd like you to consider it. I mean, the message that he had to convey was a message that it was, it was just so much part of, of the reality of his own life. Because as you read things down, as far as uh, Hosea is concerned, he, he marries this lady, he has these children, and then what happens is this, uh, she leaves him, and she becomes a prostitute. And uh, he's devastated. And, uh, you know, he doesn't see her for a long time. And eventually, in chapter 3, and uh, verse number 1, uh, the Lord says to him, Go and show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And where does he find her? He finds her in a slave market. You know, she's been prostituted out as a, as a sex slave. And so I, I, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said... Uh, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will live with you. And he has to live through all of this. And of course the message that he's conveying to the people is one about spiritual prostitution. Spiritual adultery. God has loved you with an everlasting love. God couldn't love you anymore. And yet what you have done in your hearts, despite the love of God, you have gone away and left him. And you've given your hearts over to other things, evil things, useless things, worthless things. And you've left the God that loves you. And yet God pursues you just in the same way as Hosea pursued his erring wife. God is still pursuing faithless, disloyal, 
Israel and wants to bring her back, and yet they continue in their spiritual adultery. What a challenging message. What a challenging message today for all of us. Where are our hearts? As the book of Revelation says, have we actually left our first love? Or are we still going after the Lord Jesus or the, the, the heavenly bridegroom of our souls and being devoted and committed to him? That's, that's the message that Hosea brings to us. And we'll, we'll just leave it there, I think, tonight. These, these men that speak for God with authority still into our hearts and lives today. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for these words and these people and what's been left in record. And we pray that the whole scope uh, of what they conveyed as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit will still resonate in our hearts. Again, preserve us from just having an interest, a historical interest uh, in these things. Help us to take the message to heart. And again, the glorious theme of Christ the King. Uh, and help us again, just Lord, at this time as we move into this new week, to swear our loyalty and our allegiance to our Lord Jesus. If uh, you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised them from the dead, you shall be saved. Lord, help us all to have that great confession of the Lord Jesus as our King and Lord, as we pray in his name. Amen.